The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Michelle Minette. Michelle Minette is a certified holistic life coach with a practice located in Hamilton, Ohio and clients around the United States, joining sessions and groups via Zoom. She holds a Master of Art degree in Psychology and completed all necessary academic work and on-site training for her clinical doctorate in Psychology. As a survivor of narcissistic abuse, Mrs. Minette recognized a gap in mental health services for the unique set of challenges toward healing from narcissistic abuse and used her education and training to provide this space for others. She also offers online programs and educational groups for those navigating toxic and high-conflict relationships. You can find discount coupons for her programs and educational groups in the podcast notes. In today's episode, Michelle Minette joins us to discuss the challenges of divorcing and co-parenting with someone who is high conflict, like a narcissist. We will answer questions such as how to respond when your child comes to you with lies from your ex, what to do when you notice your child being treated the same way you were, and how to ensure you are protecting your boundaries. Let's get started. So the first first question that we have is, is my child who is a teenager, inheriting narcissism if they are acting just like my ex. Can you talk about this topic? Yeah, that's a good question. I get asked this often, and um, mostly I get it from teenagers just because of that stage of development, but I hear it of um, for parents of children of all ages. So I think first we need to remember that narcissistic personality disorder is an adult diagnosis, right? People aren't allowed to diagnose narcissism until somebody's at least 18. Although a lot of people in the field would agree with me that we might want to revisit that given the the changes in human development and uh, the uh, elongated childhood that people are having. But back to to the question. No, narcissism as a personality trait is something that's expressed, especially in the teen years. Right. So um, teenagers are still developing in personality. It's not solid. Their behaviors are still the personality traits are still a little bit malleable. Right. Especially through behaviors. Um, There's a big restructuring of the brain that's happening. And so a lot of teenagers are operating directly out of the amygdala, which focuses on fear and anger. But there's also this um, phenomenon of believing that you're in front of an audience and everybody's looking at you. So especially in the teenage years, um, teenagers are moving through the world thinking that everything is about them. That's just part of development, right? And also, you know, one of the behaviors that parents see where they ask this question is, well, they're lying to me, right? I'm not a big fan of um, calling children's behavior or calling out lying in children, right? Because they're not manipulative, right? They're not like big liars. What they are is they are little scientists, right? It's their job to move through the world in a way where they're testing hypotheses all the time. And it's our job as parents to set the boundaries or to give them the right data in response to these hypotheses. So as a teenager, the last frontier of development is social um, and emotional growth. And so they're just now learning 
the long-term consequences of lying, of not being loyal, of doing these things that adult persons who have strong narcissistic traits or narcissistic personality disorder, you know, didn't figure out. And so when we treat our children as if they're like our ex, right, then we run the risk of not providing them a safe space for that development. So just because they seem to be acting like our ex or doing these behaviors that seem associated with narcissism, it's usually or most of the time just associated with appropriate developmental process. Okay. What is the age when, mm, let's say, like you said, those traits are part of a normal developmental process. What is then Mm -hmm. the age when we should be seeing kind of them like more, like those traits fading away because the person is growing up and becoming more mature? Yeah, I think that depends, right? Like there's some variance there. And especially like I said earlier, right? There's this elongated childhood. Children can't launch you know, between the ages of 18 and 22, like they used to. And so that individuation process or that process of establishing who you are independently from your family is different now than it has been. And then from a lot of the research that we have, but I would say between the ages of 18 and 22, or when they get to the point where they're starting to move out of the house, right? We want to start to see them toward the late teen years, start to have a little bit more empathy, be able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes, um, you know, and move through the world in a more compassionate way toward other people. However, if you are in the, if you are in the middle of um, the divorce or a separation from their ex, then we need to give them a little bit more grace because we all regress developmentally when we go through crisis. Thank you. Uh, what what would be the sign signs that okay my my teen is inheriting some of the narcissistic traits is it that when yeah after certain age like like you said <laughs> that, <laughs> right. then, well, then they I stay, would uh, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt but yeah I, I get what you're asking right like um so when do we seek help yeah is, yeah right okay Yeah. So I think it's dangerous to come from the perspective of, oh, no, they're developing narcissistic traits because it shades, you know, gives us a filter to look at their behaviors through that doesn't really result in the response that they need from us as parents. However, if we look at it, when do I need help or when should I get them help? I think if they're having trouble in their relationships with other children, in their relationship with you, or you're having trouble parenting them, you should always seek help, right? I think that that's an indication that somebody needs more support, Mm -hmm. right? And as a parent, if you feel like you don't have control, not big control, but you don't feel like you're the one in authority or you're having trouble feeling good about how you're interacting with them or parenting them, then it's a good idea to go ahead and get yourself and maybe even them too some support to make sure that you're engaging with them in a way that's going to help them have better, healthy relations, have healthier relationships with other people. Mm. What do you think when do people go to seek professional help and they are like, oh, well, yeah, my teenager or my almost adult adult child is having like 
strong narcissistic traits what do professionals usually then say like oh do you like do they advise them to uh, be like how how do professionals advise them people to address those traits and can we do something to for example increase their empathy and uh, uh lower their sense of entitlement if it's like you know in a toxic level and so um i think all professionals come at it from a different angle right i've even seen professionals uh which is uh I don't know, I think problematic. I've even seen professionals um, validate parents' concern that their child's becoming narcissistic. Um, from my point of view, what I do and the people that I work with do is um, set really good emotional boundaries in the home, right? And so um, you avoid making things about you, right? So if they're upset or they're mad at you for a boundary that you had to set, let's say, you know, um, they turned into, uh, they became moody and extremely irritable and were being mean to their friends or their siblings after being on a computer game or a gaming console for a while, right? And so you sat down and said, you know what, it looks like you're having trouble. So I don't believe in grounding. Looks like you're having trouble um, regulating your emotions when you're on the game for more than an hour, right? So I'm going to help you with that since you're not responsible and you're not at a point where you can do that for yourself. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm, you're not going to, you can only be on the game for an hour a day until we can figure this out. Right. Um, and then they uh, retaliate against you. It's super important to be like, listen, I understand that you're angry with me, right? It's important not to personalize their attack on the parent because it's their job to get angry at you. They're going to push for whatever they want. And so trying not to personalize what's happening with them is super important because we have to create a safe space for them to feel comfortable expressing their emotion. And at the same time, stand by and be confident in the structure that we're setting. You can be angry with me. Let me help you figure out how to be angry. Okay. You don't want that. I'll leave you alone so that you can be angry. Or if they don't want to be alone, walking away sometimes isn't the best thing to do. We have to show them that we accept them no matter what, but that they can't have an effect on our emotions, right? If a child looks at us and says, well, I'm going to make you angry, or am I making you nervous? No, honey, you can't make me feel anything. <laughs> I've got this. I'm worried about you, you know, and putting it back on them. Mm. Why that kind of approach is so important when thinking about from the child's point of view who might... Yeah, from the child's point point of view. Because they have to have a safe environment in which to develop. They need to learn that their emotions are valid. We can challenge the way that they think about them or the way that they handle them and teach them how to handle them better, right? But they need to learn that it's okay for them to have emotions. Too often, one of the mistakes we make as parents that is... I don't know, exponentially so if they have a personality disorder parent is um, putting them in a position where they feel like they can have an effect on our emotion or they're responsible for other people's emotions. And that goes both ways. You made me angry. So now I'm yelling because you made me angry, right? Or I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling sad. I need you to help me feel better, right? We need to stay away from both. 
right? When they have a healthy environment to grow up in, then they learn to value um, or they learn to validate themselves intrinsically and have that um, base of awareness for moving through the world. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Oh, can I add to that? Yeah, of course, please. Because especially since we're talking about narcissism, the crux of narcissism and uh, most personality disorders is the attempt to control your own emotions and build your own identity by relying on the world around you, right? And so for narcissism especially, um, I'm going to make people feel a certain way so that they show me this image of who I am. So if we teach children from a young age that they don't have control over other people's emotions and other people don't control their emotions, we're teaching, providing a safe space for them to develop into healthy adults that can have healthy relationships with other people and a core sense of their own identity. Mm, that makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, oh, yeah, let's go to the next question. Uh, my follow up questions probably fit there better. And uh, the next, okay. the next question is, like, why isn't co parenting working? Right? Well, co parenting is like the best option that we can do when we're uh, divorced, right, or not living in the same home as the other parent. So most parenting classes, especially those for divorced couples, are going to focus on teaching co-parenting. However, <laughs> it's not the best thing to do if you're divorcing a high-conflict person or you're in a high-conflict situation, right? Parallel parenting then becomes the best. Um, most people, when they go through a divorce, because divorce tends to be a high-conflict situation, will parallel parent until they're on the other side of the breakup or the divorce, and then they'll be in a position to co-parent. But for those people who are divorcing high conflict others or people who have narcissistic personality disorder, you're going to parallel parent forever. And the reason is like, a, um, I always like to give this example, right? The difference between co-parenting and parallel parenting. So let's say, uh, for example, like your kids uh, having night terrors, right? For those parents out there that have had that, they're horrible. They're so horrible to watch. Right. So your kids starting to have night terrors and you call up your ex and you're like, listen, they've been having these night terrors at night. I'm not sure what to do. I just want to give you the heads up and check in and see if they're happening there. If your ex says, or the other parent says, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Let's go ahead and make an appointment. It hasn't happened here yet. Thanks for the heads up. You're co-parenting. Right. If your ex, however, says, um, wow, it's not happening here, it must be something you're doing there, then you need to parallel parent, right? And the difference is that in parallel parenting, you are only sharing what's important, right? What happened at school, whether or not they've been sick, um, you know, just the basics, right? Um, in, and that's because the extra stuff becomes emotional ammo. Right. You're not going to discuss what your thoughts are about their development or how they might be having a problem with a friend or this happened when you visited family, because all that information becomes stuff that they can use against you in order to take control or have power over you. Right. You're a bad parent. Um, you shouldn't have exposed them to this. That doesn't happen here. 
right? So parallel parenting can be as strict as we can't both go to the same sporting events, or we can't go to the same parent-teacher meetings, or we can't go to the same doctor's offices, right? But there's kind of a spectrum in there, and I've seen parents draw the line just wherever conflict is going to occur. So parallel parenting is to avoid the conflict that comes from trying to co-parent. And if you continue to try to co-parent when you have a high conflict X, it creates a situation that's not only bad for you, but through the two of you exposes the children to conflict or um, yeah, kind of a negative environment, even if they're not a witness to the conflict that's happening. Mm, okay. Okay. Makes sense. So in parallel parenting, is it almost like you approach the situation as if you were a single parent, but then of course those most important things you do discuss with the other parent, parent, but like only the basic ones. Absolutely. Right. It's like, it's, um, it's like the same thing as parallel play, right? When you put one-year-olds next to each other and you're saying you're having a play date, but they actually play two different things, just sitting next to each other. That's what's happening here. Whatever in parallel parenting, whatever happens at the other parent's house stays in the other parent's house, whatever happens in your house stays in your house. Right. And it is, it's just like your single parenting. That was a great okay. observation. All right. And uh, the, I'm th still thinking about the like the reason, like why it's not working. Is it just because they are the high conflict, they have a high conflict personality or have high narcissistic traits with themselves and then they are just unable to put their own selfish needs, for example, desire for power and control aside and think for the best, what is best for the child, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, there's a couple of things, right? When I describe, um, when we talk about narcissism specifically, when I describe narcissism uh, to people, I usually talk about how everybody in a narcissist's life is a mirror, right? Because they don't have a core sense of self. So your reflection, they rely on your reflection of who they are um, and they act in ways to get the reflection that they want to see in themselves in that moment, which changes depending on the moment who's around but the minute that you leave them right you see the worst of them you reflect the worst of what they're capable of they can't handle that so they can't just turn the mirror around and say be out of my life and we'll not talk about it anymore but they have to shatter the mirror and have control over that mirror at any time because that way then you can't reflect an image that they're not okay with at all ever right and since you share a child with them, that that is a constant source of threat. And so it does become a constant uh, mission of theirs to discredit you when they can. Um, and I think it was H.G. Tudor that said, and I really liked this, um, even though it's difficult to hear him talk sometimes, <laughs> if you're familiar with him. Um, but he had said, too, that um, every interaction with a narcissist they view as having taking power from you or you're taking power from them every single interaction with another person right and so when they have the opportunity when you give them the opportunity to have power over you they'll take it mm. yeah i have heard something similar yeah that uh, they the way they approach relationships that you were talking about interactions but yeah like the way they approach relationships it's always that 
someone like the other one is superior and the other one is inferior like there is always this like so the other one is on top and the other one is on, uh, on at the bottom or something like that like not like yeah equal, that we are equals or we are like we don't have to even like approach our relationship from the from that point of view but they actually do <laughs> so yeah yeah there is no uh no partnership and it was this big revelation you know, you hear these things too, but when I heard him say it was a big revelation, you know, I took it back to the, the group that I want or that I run and with the clients that I see. And every time anybody was confused about trying to explain the behavior of their ex, we just put that filter on it and it made sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, so <laughs> kudos to the tutor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, then I think we should move on to the next one. And that is, uh, so how do I respond when they tell me things my ex lied to them about? So how do I respond to my child, right? Well, right. When they, yeah, when they tell me things that, you know, my ex lied to them about. Right. So I have, you know, when I teach this, um, I, I teach a parenting class. Um, for divorcing couples, right? And that's one of the five things I want them to remember, if nothing else, is it's never okay to cut down the other parent. Um, and or let anybody else cut down the other parent. And I don't the the I hope you don't mind if I go into a story about that now. Is that okay? Yeah, of um, course, please. That why? Yeah. So um children um they see themselves as an extension of their parents, right? So like I will I'll see an adult who had uh, an abusive parent that struggled with anger. And even to this day, right, they won't express anger, they're uncomfortable expressing anger, or they won't even label an angry emotion as anger for fear that they're going to behave the same way as this parent. You know, um, and I kind of look at it this way too. Like my, I see, you see a chiropractor, my child was like, I don't know, 11 months old. And my child would jump right up and get adjusted and then I get up and get adjusted and they loved it when it was happening to them, right? Giggling corn. We're going to get the popcorn out, you know, like he, he, he loved it. But when I got up there to get adjusted, my child was screaming, like they were being tortured themselves. So I asked a psychiatrist friend of mine back at the time, I was like, what is going on here? And he said, well, they haven't yet realized that they're not part of your body. So when they see that happening to them, it looks painful. And so they scream as if it's happening to them. And I think it's a really good image to remember when we cut down a child's parent, that's what we're doing to them emotionally. We're hurting their self-esteem. So it's never okay to cut down the other parent. That aside, to answer this question, we can't control what the other parent says or does to them, right? And it's not our job to manage it anymore other than our job is to help our child work through those emotions when the other parent is actually damaging their relationship with their child by doing that, by not creating a safe space for them to feel loyal or love you as their other parent. So how do you respond to these things when they're like, you know, my other parents said that you're a jerk because of this and this, right? And you abuse them or you spent all the money or you mooched off of them or you cheated on them, whatever. Um, our primary job is not to cut down the other parent and to provide a safe space. If we go into and follow our gut, which I get, right? We all want to be like, that's not true. I don't want you to think these horrible things about me. 
but we're also playing into the game. We're also playing into not creating a safe space. So as hard as it is, and I get how hard it is, uh, the best thing that we can do is look at them and say, I'm so sorry, baby, that you have that information. I'm so sorry. I want you to be a kid and I don't want you to have to worry about adult things, right? We split up. It's not your fault that we split up. Sometimes relationships don't work. And um, I've got this. I'll answer any questions you have about how this directly affects you. Do you have questions about what's going on with you? I'm there, right? But this is adult information and, and we can't have that conversation or something like that. Or that, And then switch it back to them. That must have been difficult for you to hear. What can I do for you? What do you need from me? You know, and oftentimes it's our job to uh, help them problem solve, like give them multiple choices for coping skills because they're still trying to figure out what works for them, you know, and so jump into that. But always turn it back to them to set that boundary that we just talked about. Okay, okay. Is that regardless of the child's age? Absolutely. To be honest with you, and I still need to do more research on this, I haven't decided which camp I'm in. I think even as an adult, I'm not comfortable talking about specific instances that led to the divorce with their other parent. You know, I haven't yet figured out if it's beneficial to continue to shield them from that specific information or to have an honest discussion about it when they're an adult. Um, but yes, for children, absolutely. I mean, they're still developing emotionally and psychologically, right? When we share, I use this analogy, when we share adult information with the child, whether it has to do with the divorce, with their other parent, or even our relationships with our coworkers, with our families, with our friends, we're skewing or we're interrupting their development. I see, um, I see ages like um, video game levels, right? So like uh, at 47 years old, right? I have an almost, I have a 14 year old. Let me try that again. That wasn't the right response. At 47 years old, you're supposed to say, what? You're not 47. <laughs> but anyway, I'm 47 years old, right? At level 47 in a game with level 47 armor, right? And uh, weapons and endurance and magic. So I don't know what game you're playing, but any, right? All those factors, right? I wouldn't take 14 year old and put them into level 47 with level 14 armor, weapons, endurance, and magic spells and expect them to survive. And since um, social and emotional growth isn't that tangible, we don't necessarily see that we're doing that, right? And so maybe as an adult, I could be talked into, we can have those frank discussions, but maybe at like age 30, because I think in our 20s, we're still trying to socially and emotionally develop. And our brain isn't fully developed until we're 26, 27, or 28 anyway. That's interesting. And can you talk and explain more about how it actually disrupts the development? What happens there if you do, you know, start to talk about like con having conversations that are not for them? Right. Well, there's a lot, I mean, on, on one level, right. Like just a real mild 
explanation. And we want to support our children when they're having problems at school or if they're having a difficult time with the teacher, right? But if we complain, if we get into uh, a complaint session with them about a teacher and we aren't respecting their teacher, right, then they're going to go into school and feel like they're on the same level as the teacher and they're not going to respect the teacher in the classroom and they're going to act in ways that actually get them into trouble that we can't help them out with, you know? And so, uh, so that's one example, you know, another, and, and it, it affects their behavior. It can affect their behavior when they're around your family. If you're complaining about the family, they might jump into a discussion <laughs> and start talking like they have the experience and the wisdom that they don't have with regard to the situation. And we've all been around those kids. I know we have, right? We want to be like, who told them that they're getting your leg, right? Like how to, right. Um, and so, uh, and it's not a matter of like, you know, keeping them down right? Or, you know, taking them down a peg. Um, but we need to remind them that they don't have the experience. And when we talk to them as if they do, and on the same level, we kind of set them up to fail. At worst, however, um, especially if we're talking about the other parent, we've interrupted their ability to have authority over that child, their ability to be loyal to that parent, their ability to respect that parent. And that's not good. Um, that's not good for them at all. Mm, okay. Thank you. Um, oh, can I add to that? I just thought yeah, more. Yeah, please. <laughs> also, we put them in a position of um, surrogate partnership. And I'm just going to throw this out there because it's a trigger word. But we also risk um, what we might call emotional intimacy. When we're talking, sorry, emotional incest. Right. So when we talk to them about the problems we have with family members or the problems we have with our, our friends at work or the problems we're even having with our ex, um, that puts them in a position to try to fix us. Right. Or rescue us from the feelings that we're having. Not only do they not have the emotional maturity, but they rely on us as a parent child relationship in order to have a safe space to develop through those things. When they have to meet our needs or we're relying on them to meet our needs, we set them up to have, um, I think what we would call codependent relationships or unhealthy relationships where they find their self-worth in providing for others, fixing others and rescuing others from their emotions. Mm, yeah. So it's like, I have heard the, uh, you know, the term emotional incest, that was the thing. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that it's something like, I don't know, more severe than the example that you just gave. But, uh, but it is like, if you kept, if you keep kind of sharing your concerns with your child, it can, it can kind of even be classified as emotional incest, really. Yeah, well, it depends. It's on this. Um, it's on the spectrum, right? Like yeah. just sharing your concerns and sharing your day and the things that happens as an adult can start at this end of just the surrogate partnership, right? Where they become the person that you talk to to process your day, you know, which shouldn't happen. It's problematic. Then all the way down at the other end of the spectrum is, you know, mommy's really upset because 
her friend did this and I'm just not able to do anything today. And then your child ends up making your favorite dinner, massaging your feet, you know, putting your favorite scent in the diffuser, you know, like, and not doing their homework, you know, um, ignoring their friends, not getting their own time. That's when it gets down into emotional incest. Mm, okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, then uh, can we move on to the next question? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Uh, this is, this is a good one. What do I do when I know they are treating my child the same they did me? So the high conflict ex or a, a ex who has narcissistic traits or a narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, I get that. I get that question a lot. And it's, this is a, really the crux of personalization, right? When we're making it about us, but we don't realize it because we're focused on our children and what's going on with them. So in order to set really good boundaries, especially through a breakup or a divorce with somebody who has been abusive or toxic to you in some way, we have two things to remember. If you were a child of divorce, you have to give your child the freedom of having their own experience through divorce instead of projecting your experience onto them. Like, I know how they're feeling because I felt this way, right? And I know what that means because I did that. There is a certain amount of monitoring and information that we can gather because situations are similar, but we have to make sure we're leaving space for them to tell us what their experience is instead of just assuming. Uh, when we assume, we act in ways that lead our children right along and give them a narrative instead of allowing them to develop their own. Um, I think the other thing is too, we have a tendency to project onto them um, when they tell us about what's going on at our ex's house, right? We have a tendency to put it through this filter of they're doing the same thing they did to me. And we need to give them the space to have their own relationship with our ex. Our relationship with our ex isn't the same relationship that they have with their parent, right? And so trying to set a boundary there is difficult because we wanna run in and protect them at every angle and make sure that they're okay. And when the behaviors or the things they're describing seem similar, it's even harder because we know how we felt. Well, I know that they're lying to them. Do you? We also have to remember that our children who are little scientists, when they come back and they tell us what's going on in the other house, that might not be true, right? Like it could be uh, that it's flat out not true. Or it could just be that it's gone through some filter and it's enhanced in some way. And so setting a boundary for that is super important. Right? When you think that your ex is treating your child the same, what we can best do is ask questions for more information and bolster them with the skills to be able to handle situations um, where they have to make a request or say no with regard to someone that has authority or power over them, rather than coming at them with, I know how your other parent is, right? They did the same thing to me. Let's talk about how you can be better over there, or what I can do to help you, right? And that's not helpful. You run the risk of putting down the other parent. Um, and also you run the risk of rescuing them from a situation in which you don't you shouldn't be involved. 
And so the best thing to do is to talk it through. How would you like to handle this? What would you like to see change? You know, and then coach them and Mm -hmm. train them about how to have those conversations. Thank you. Do you have any tips for parents who are trying to, you know, follow that advice that you just gave, but might be struggling to not personalize and um, like how, how to stay calm and remember those things that you just said? Uh, yeah. How do you have any tips? Yes. Anytime you have a strong emotional reaction to something your child does or says, you're personalizing, right? And when we personalize, we're not in a position to be able to handle it well. Right. And so that's when you take a parent timeout. Right. And we don't just walk away from our kid. Right. Like, you know what? Let me think about that and I'll get back to you later today or give me about 30 minutes to process this, you know, and then go take your parent timeout, figure out why you're having a strong emotional reaction um, and separate it out and then decide, okay, what is it that my child needs from me? And then come back and provide the coaching that your child needs. And if that's still difficult, or even if you have to do that process, I highly recommend um, seeing a professional, you know, just for some support so that you can talk that through. Okay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Mm, then we have a specific question. What if they keep sending old clothes back after I dress my child in the new clothes I just bought? I hear this question all the time, right? And if it's not clothes, it's shoes or it's a toy or it's not coming back, right? It's always, and and for good reason, right? There are parents that through the conflict of divorce or a breakup or just being a high conflict individual will keep these items, you know, on purpose, you know? And then there are some that are just monitoring every single dime that they're spending through that conflict. So Um, The question comes down to, does your child need it, right? I mean, we just have to radically accept that these things are going to happen. Does your child need new clothes? Do you have the money? Just buy them new clothes, right? It's not helpful to also then dress your child in the old clothes that don't fit when they go back to the other parent's house because it's not about the other parent, it's about the child. And if you have, the ability to buy the new clothes and they need the new clothes, you just removed an opportunity for conflict or power over you from the other parent. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I I just uh, like, well, I don't have kids and uh, <laughs> I'm just this question. You said, Oh, this happens all the time. Like, uh, like I, I haven't even like thought about that, but it seems that it is pretty, uh, pretty common. It is. It's funny, and it sounds real petty, right? Yeah. You know, um, but it happens in every, I can't say every, almost every case where there's conflict, there's an argument about what's going back and forth between the homes. <laughs> you know, if it fits. If you're, if you're sending it back and sending your child back and forth, it's either with a bag or uh, a book bag or their own little bag, right? If it fits in their book bag or their own little bag, it should go back and forth because it's about what the child, you know, what the child owns and what the child wants. Mm. You bought it for your child. It belongs to your child and they should have the opportunity. Mm. 
Uh, then, is there anything else uh, to kind of remember when thinking about your child and you are going through divorce or have just divorced? Uh, like, what are some other most important things that you should bear in mind when thinking about your child and your child's needs? Right. Yeah. So I mentioned there were five things, right, that I, I always tell parents who are going through a divorce or have been divorced that you need to remember um, in order to help your child not develop long term emotional difficulties, right, as a result of divorce. Uh, the one was, you know, don't put down the other parent ever. Um, but the first one is, you know, tell them it's not their fault. Um, and oftentimes parents are hesitant to tell the children it's not their fault because uh, they don't want to give the child the idea, right, that it was their fault. But they already have that idea because as good parents, we teach our children that when they hurt, you know, it's their fault. They could have made a different choice, right? Like my child was balancing on a ball once in my parents' house and my dad's like, quit doing that. My kid keeps doing it. My kid's three, you know, kid keeps doing it. I get off the ball. You're going to hurt yourself. Keeps balancing on the ball. Okay. You know, you're going to get hurt. Don't come crying to me. That's a whole nother podcast topic about whether or not that's okay. Right. But <laughs> my child fell off of the ball. Right. So just illustrates, you know, okay, well, it's your fault, right? Like you kept doing something I told you not to do and you hurt. We do that all the time. When we go through a breakup with our other parent, um, it's usually the first time or the most impactful time that they hurt through no fault of their own, you know? And so we have to remind them over and over. Sometimes bad things happen, right? This is not your fault. Um, also, I remind people, uh, parents to not lie. Don't lie and make sure you keep your promises more than ever. Children, when we go through a breakup, they just watched, um, a situation happened that they never thought was possible, right? And uh, through no fault of your own, this is the one time as a parent that you can't provide a safe space for them because it's your fault, right? That their world blew up. So you, um, it is so important to make sure that you, when you tell them you're going to do something, that you follow through with it because they're trying to figure out where their safe space is and they have to be able to rely on you. And the last one is um, show your love through words and actions. They need lots of nurturing. You can buy them all the stuff in the world, but it's never a replacement for the love and the care and the nurturance that they need, especially when they're going through crises. So whether it's a new divorce or breakup from your high conflict ex, or it's an ongoing high conflict situation at the other parent's house, being able to provide opportunities for you to do nurturing things together one-on-one -on -one, is super important. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, mm, do you see that people struggle with showing their love through words and actions towards their child or is it just some like narcissistic parents struggle with that, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, narcissistic parents only struggle with it when they're not getting that positive reflection, right? <laughs> but if they're getting the positive reflection, you get a lot of it. It's just not in a healthy way. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that parents, when you're going through a great breakup, you're in crisis too, 
Mm. So um, taking the time to do these things, it's just a reminder to do these things and to do these things in creative ways, right? When we're going through a crisis, we're just focused on getting through, you know? So it's just a reminder. But also I think that there are some ways that we interact with our children in this society that can um, inhibit that. Like for example, uh, most parents will talk about how their child will sleep in their bed when they're going through um, a divorce. You know, they start sleeping in their bed again or making their way into their bed at night. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's, there's, you know, no research that says there's something wrong with that. You know, uh, we talk through ways of whether that's okay with you or it's not okay with you, but how to give them the nurturance that they need. So they don't do that if you don't want them to, right? So like you move their bedtime up half an hour earlier and you spend that time in their bed, right? So that they're getting more nurturance and they need a lot more nurturing, just like we all do when we go through a crisis. <clears throat> Um, I had a parent ask me once, <laughs> anytime a child asks you to do something they can do for themselves, they're asking you if you love them, right? They're asking for nurturance. So I had a parent once, and this is a, a you know, a 15 year old that had a, a, a traumatic childhood. But anyway, I had a parent ask me once, they're like, my 15 year old, right? At 1030 at night, right after I get in bed, comes in and asks me to make him a sandwich. You're telling me I need to make him a sandwich? And I'm like, yeah you, yes, you're going to get out of bed and make them a sandwich. They're asking you for nurturance. They need to know that you love them. So the first night you make the sandwich, you get out of bed. The second night you get out of bed and you make them a sandwich. But at that point, it's a pattern. So when they come back the third night, right, you look at them and you say, you know what, because we're going to martial arts this into something that's appropriate for a 15 year old, right? You know what? I already made your sandwich. It's waiting for you in the refrigerator. I'm going to come down and sit with you while you eat it because that's the appropriate thing to ask for. That's what we want to morph it into. You just wanted to spend time with me. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then, then we have, so how, how would you advise people? How do you actually parent with a high conflict person or a person with uh, high narcissistic traits or NPD? Uh, so how to parent with them and protect your own boundaries at the same time? That's a really, that's a really tough one, right? Um, I mean, just the, the experience of, of being with somebody who's that toxic or has NPD, uh, in and of itself, right. Teaches us that our healthy way of interacting with other people, you know, um, puts us at risk. Um, that's why it's so unique. And so we have this pull to co-parent, you know, we're going to discuss this. We're going to handle it as a team. We're going to go in. You can't do it that way. Right. Um, you just, you have to parallel parent. Um, so to protect your own boundaries, I think having a set structure for how you communicate is super important. Um, and with the worst cases, and I think I saw this in the book, Surviving a Narcissist, right? Um, or not Surviving a Narcissist, yeah, Divorcing a Narcissist, that was the book. Uh, you know, I think she, the author eventually got to a point where she had specific, very strict communication, right? Um, text, you can communicate with me over text only if it's an emergency, and if you think it's an emergency and I'm not responding, here's the phone number of two other people that are very close to me that always know where I am that you can contact in case. 
um, phone calls are only going to go to my child, right? I'm not going to answer any phone calls from you. It'll go to voicemail if the child's not around or I'll just give it straight to my child. And emails, there was an email schedule. So you can create your own email for free, right? So I, you have an email address just for your ex and you have set times based on the parenting schedule. Uh, I think like, you know, like, let's say like Sunday night at six and Wednesday night at six, where you're going to read the emails about the information that should go back and forth about your child or your children. Right. Um, I think I even had a template at one point that had all the salient or the most important aspects, right? Like health, school, uh, any requests or changes in the visitation schedule, that kind of stuff as an email. And that way you protect yourself from uh, the texts that come, you know, intermittently throughout the day. So the reason that I said it's difficult now is that um, I'll just throw out there, our court system, at least in this country, is really crappy with regard to protecting um, the, the parents and the children who've been in these toxic relationships. And one of the things they like to do, and I understand why, but one of the things they like to do is to have you use one of these court family apps, mm. you know, where everything's recorded, nothing can be changed or altered, which is why they like to do it. The problem is the communication that goes back and forth all falls under the same alert. So it doesn't protect you as a parent uh, or as a person from them using the app to attack you throughout the day, right? Because you have to check everything that is sent mm, because well, it doesn't separate it out, right? Like, like I did, I can choose to check that email only at certain times. Mm, but is there a problem if you, for example, log into the app only a specific days? Is it like bad if you do get a text and you do not respond immediately? I think that it's possible, and I'm not an attorney, but I think that it is possible that the court can look poorly on that, right? What if the text, so if you have the children, you know, you can probably, if they're in your care at the time that the text is sent, you can probably get away without looking at it right away. But if you don't, right, then you have to, because you have to be able to look up emergent situations or be ready to be able to parent your child if there's an emergency. Mm. And so it puts you at more risk for being able to set that boundary. But overall, um, you have to shore up the access that your ex has to you, right? So you're not friends on social media. Um, maybe you're not friends or maybe for a short period of time, you aren't connected on social media with anybody that's in their life. Not because they would knowingly or purposefully share information about your life that could be used against you, but because they might accidentally share information that they can't imagine would even be an issue, right? And so maybe we're shouldering them with too much responsibility by having access to them or them having access to us and the things that we do. Um, you know, by recognizing that even if they say something's okay, right? Like, um, then they might be running a smear campaign behind our back, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, no, they said it was OK that they would go ahead and, you know, pay for this. You know, 
then they're sharing with other people that, you know, we were a mooch or whatever. Right. So being able to shore up all these different areas, I, I kind of see it as like a fortress <laughs> against the ex, right. Against the high, well, or the family, right. Whoever it is, that's a narcissist building up a fortress and they'll tell us, they'll tell us where the leaks are. The minute they send some emotional ammo over, I saw on Facebook that you were spending money on this, but I've been sending you shots. Okay. Blocked, you know? Mm-hmm. So they, They'll tell us. And so we just have to trust ourselves to respond to those. Mm, okay. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Like okay. that, that, that advice, like, you know, just blocking them everywhere and really deciding, okay, the ways of, uh, you know, communicating when, because obviously we do have to have some way when we have a child together, but, um, I still hear and I also see in different communities that people don't follow that advice. They do not block someone. They do they do stay friends on social media. They do uh, you know engage in text messaging like going back and forth in uh, like through text messages and stuff like that. Uh have you why do you think that is and what yeah in in your experience? You know, um think there's a lot of reasons for that right and my my big risk my one I heard this years ago and it's one of my favorite phrases I'm going to clean it up for the podcast but when the pain exceeds the pleasure you quit hugging the porcupine right um so I would say every behavior is functional um and I, I think oftentimes when we've been in a relationship with a narcissist or with um somebody that is toxic in this way or abusive in this way we have been groomed. And I can't tell you the number of people that show up for my group. And they're like, well, I think that I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. And then over the course of a couple of months, they're like, well, not only was I in a relationship with a narcissist, but I came from a narcissistic family system, you know? And so there's this unraveling, this um, unraveling of, of discovery, you know? And I think there are ways that we move through the world, um, because of those experiences, right? And so there's something that people are getting out of it, you know? And I think sometimes there's this hope that there'll be some validation and so they maintain contact, you know? Uh, yeah, I don't, because they've, they've just been groomed to do that because they're still, like they're still lingering gaslighting where they believe that they were bull in a china shop in that relationship or they were the one who was to blame or at fault in that relationship. And so, you know, they're still in a way without being aware of it, doing penance. There are all sorts of reasons why people, and sometimes depending upon the relationship, sometimes there are periods of relief, you know, and sometimes we forget who they are. Right. And when I talk to the people, I'm like, I think we just talked about this. I think last month or maybe a couple months ago where, um, narcissists in particular, people with MPD in particular are so good, right? At selling their story that even after we saw the worst, the worst of our exes, they would come up with some story and be like, you know, you know, I care about you and you know, it's so important that you do this. You know that I would. And in a moment you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. They do. And you have to be like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, (laughs) if they're able to, um, do that in, in, in that, you know, in that context, I think that we just, 
we have this ability to want to believe in the good in other people. And that is the uniqueness of this type of abuse is that we don't want to lose that ability. So how do you protect, how do you foster, maintain that way of moving through the world and still create this callus around it or this boundary around it to protect it? Right? So it's not, we're not so vulnerable or open to being hurt again. And I think that that's a tricky, tricky thing to do which is why people and I have the practices we do so that we can help people get there. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, I think today we had a great topic and yeah. uh, I think we learned a lot. So I, I want to thank everyone for listening and thank you, Michelle, so much for coming to this episode today and sharing your valuable insight. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.